Kansas anymore. Are you ready? No, I'm just getting warmed up. This task was appointed to you. I said I want the truth! I say we take off and nuke the entire site from orbit. Dodge that. Hello listeners, I'm Billy, PR and Communications Officer here at the BBFC, and today, rather than focus on classification of a film or series, we will be discussing a display which the BBFC took part in earlier this year at the Victorian Albert Museum called Censored Stage Screen Society at 50. To discuss this display, I have recruited Ed Lamberti, our operations manager, who is a veteran of the podcast, but has not been on for some time. Lovely to have you back, Ed, it's been so long. Lovely to be back, Billy. Hello. <laughs> and as a real treat, we've been joined by V&A curator Keith Lodwick, who will hopefully give us some insight into this fascinating display. Welcome, Keith, and thank you so much for coming on. Thank you very much for inviting me. Fantastic. So, right, to kick off, Keith, do you think you'd be able to give us a summary of the display and what anniversary this is marking? Well, the display marks the 50th anniversary of the end of theatre censorship, which took place in 1968. We had a Lord Chamberlain who effectively acted as a state censor until that point and would give a license to everything that was performed on the British stage. So this moment comes to an end in 68, but we look back at the challenges to the Lord Chamberlain through objects drawn from the theatre and performance collections at the V&A. We look at 68 and then we look at um, post-68 and in fact try and look at the question, is there still censorship on the British <laughs> stage? And we were very fortunate that we were able to interview a number of leading practitioners, uh, theatre critics, writers, to get their views on the subject. But in the exhibition, we also explore the censorship of music that took place uh, in Britain mm. in the 20th century. We look at film. And as a sort of spotlight display, we look at the obscenity trial that took place in 1971 of the Oz magazine and the consequences to British society uh, post that trial. Mm. So we, we, cover, we cover quite a lot, <laughs> but I, I hope it sort of raises just some of the, some of the issues around censorship um, and what that sort of means to the British public. I think what we should also mention at this point is that there are a number of adult themes that are covered off quite a lot in the exhibition itself. So it's probably worth bearing in mind that this may not necessarily be appropriate for young children. Um, as there are some explicit elements that are factored into it. But it is a fantastic exhibition that is free to go to until the 27th of January. But it's, it's a really, really well-rounded, I'd say. Yeah, yeah, me too. Absolutely. So why did you decide to approach the BBFC when you did and what were you looking for when you came in to see our archives? We wanted to look at film censorship in the 20th century. Mm. We felt that film really runs parallel to, to theatre. Um, plays are, are often filmed, um, but will be filmed perhaps in a different, different way. Um, one of the, um, the case studies in the exhibition was looking at uh, a Streetcar Named Desire, mm -hmm. first performed um, here in 1949, which of course was censored, not censored on Broadway in America, but censored here. We have some very rich documentation in our Vivian Lee archive, correspondence with the director, uh, Laurence Olivier, uh, with the Lord Chamberlain, correspondence from Tennessee Williams regarding the cuts to the play. And then it was filmed in Hollywood in 1950, at least 1951. But that documentation is a very interesting narrative between all those parties, mm. sort of effectively sort of 
fighting, fighting censorship. There are a number of case studies in terms of film that we, we felt were quite important, and one of them was, was Victim, released in 1961. This film was the very first film that uh, used the word homosexual, and mm. it's got a very strong message blackmail cases that were taking place um, in Great Britain at that point. A huge number of blackmail cases were of homosexual men. And Janet Green, who wrote the, the book and subsequently the screenplay, had a very long correspondence with the BBFC. And so what was wonderful was to be able to come to the archive um, and look through some of that correspondence and really explore how the, the screenwriter was working with the BBFC on creating a treatment that would of course be passed because ultimately once the film once the film is filmed then it has to go to the board to be classified or potentially cut so it was just interesting to see that role the role of the bbfc how they work with screenwriters and how involved they were with the british film industry in order to get the film out and released Definitely. So, as I mentioned, Keith came into the BBFC to a um, few uh, sections of our archive, and when you came in, you met with Ed. Hey. So, <laughs> <laughs> so um, Ed, when Keith came in um, to view our files, that was quite a common practice. Is that something yeah. that um, anyone can do? It is. So, we have files uh, that come up to sort of the late 1990s, because from about 1997, all of our sort of records related to classification, our examiner reports, uh, correspondence with the industry and so on, is all done on computer. But prior <laughs> to uh, prior to the late 90s, even as far up until the late 90s, it was done on paper. And so we've got individual files on thousands upon thousands of movies and TV programs and you name it um, that were submitted for classification over the years, over the decades. And these have been painstakingly digitised. They, they have been digitised now as well. So we have the original hard copies that we hold off-site in deep storage and then we have digitised copies that, that, that exist as PDFs. And researchers are welcome to contact us to inquire about files. And researchers working on a particular film or a particular issue are welcome to come in and look at our files. We provide access to files if the paperwork in the file is over 20 years old. Yep. Um, anything less than 20 years, we don't provide access yet. We have a, a sort of a 20-year kind of embargo on, on the files. But anything older than that can be made available. And so uh, Keith came in to look at... Um, I think it was three files, wasn't it? It was Victim, The War Game, and The Killing of Sister George, yes, that's right, yes. which are three films from the mm. 1960s, all of which had their kind of, let's maybe controversial classification moments. Mm. As you say, Keith, I mean, Victim, you know, underwent a, a sort of a pre-production process that it very did, heavily indeed, involved the yes. BBFC in terms of script collaboration and so on. And the film ended up did end up being classified with an X. I think just one cut to a line of dialogue. But other than that, it was classified X and was released in cinemas sort of with that stamp of approval, if you like. And as listeners may know, I mean, Victim went on actually to be quite a significant film, really, in, in, very much in so. British history, very didn't much it? So, yes, um, because yeah, it had a very strong message. It had, it had a very strong message, and it was made and released at around sort of the time that Lord Wolfenden had put forward a, a proposal to li to decriminalise homosexuality, right. which at that time was still a crime yes. to carry out homosexual acts, or however one might say it, to have homosexual relations, um, was still a crime in, in Britain at that point. Mm. It ended up being partially decriminalised in 1967, yeah. and... I think, you know, there's consensus really, isn't there? The victim was a, you know, played a significant cultural part in sort of moving that argument along and in really changing minds about the sort of the acceptability and the acceptance of homosexuality and of, of 
gay characters in movies, but also of, of gay people in society. I, I think it did without question. And, and to have someone like D- Dirk Bogard, yeah. um, who had really spent the 1950s as doctor in the house, I mean, he was a real sort of matinee idol mm, in the absolutely. 50s. Yeah. Um, to, take on, to take on that role was an enormous risk to his career. Very brave. Yeah. And uh, I think really shifted his, his career, absolutely. And he began to take on much more challenging roles. Mm. But enormous personal and professional risk. And we, and we, we cover those elements yeah. um, in the exhibition. But what was so wonderful about coming, coming here to see your archives was that it really helped us inform our exhibition narrative. Mm. And so the research that I did here uh, really went back into our, you know, our caption text and our display text, and it's all sort of fed in mm. to the exhibition uh, treatment. Mm. So it was a mm. wonderful opportunity and so great that those, those, that material still exists. Yeah, I mean, we were at pains to sort of preserve it and to, and to make it available to people who have an interest in it. I mean, one of the reasons we digitised the archive um, a few years ago now was to preserve the original paper copies. Up to that point when um, researchers would come in to look at the files we were giving them, we were showing them the original paper copies Um, and that's great, they're lovely to handle and you're looking at letters between you know the BBFC and sort of often very famous filmmakers and and distributors and so on but of course um, some of these documents are decades old and we do want to ensure that that they remain preserved but we're very keen to aid people in the research and certainly not to get in the way of people's research and so yeah, so one, one advantage of having them digitised is that it makes that access very, very easy. Um, it preserves the original file by allowing us to provide a PDF. The other thing is it makes it a lot quicker. The PDF is available, you know, usually available at a click of a mouse, whereas the paper files have to be called back from deep storage and, and so on and so forth. So the digitisation um, project that we went through was really important. Um, but it's because, you know, it's, it was a means to an end, and the end is to, is to preserve this history and to make that material available because... You know, as Keith, as, as you saw and as, and as you're demonstrating through, through um, your exhibition at the VNA, a lot of this is still massively relevant to how we understand the world today. Yes, absolutely, yes. And I think it's all about the accessibility of it in the sense of as it's digitised, we are able to show people so much more. So the mm. the fact is that people can come in and see as, as much as we can possibly offer for them. Obviously, there are some files that aren't available because we don't have them. So we have very good coverage going back to the late 1950s. Um, it's not totally comprehensive. There are some films that we don't have files for, but really I tend to think if someone contacts us with a request for a film that dates from 1957 to 1997, the chances are we'll have a file on it. We'll have uh, something. We're yeah. always quite surprised when we when it turns out we haven't. Prior to 57, um, things are much more spotty. We actually only have a couple of hundred files. In fact, we have a list of, I think it is pretty much exactly 200 files dating from the late 40s to the late 50s. Um, we do know that a lot of our records in the 40s and 50s were unfortunately gotten rid of uh, for reasons of space and stuff like this. And what one can only imagine... It was a different era. It was a different era, <laughs> and of course it was an era in which there was no such thing as home video, much less streaming and online and so on. Mm. And, you know, people saw films once. They saw films when they came out in the cinema. Um, right. I mean, film scholarship acknowledges this, doesn't it? That, that if you're... That, if you're reading something that was written about a film from, say, 1940 in, say, 1950, the person writing it might have seen the film once, 10 years ago or twice or whatever. 
Um, it's not like now where you can you can sort of scrutinise things frame by frame and, and have ready access to all sorts of films. And so I can only imagine that our dear former BBFC colleagues, <laughs> our BBFC ancestors, if you like, um, just figured that nobody would really want to be revisiting this material decades later. But of oh, course, how wrong they were. from our perspective, <laughs> it is a shame. Another thing to mention is that um, we were bombed during the war. We were bombed in the Second World Absolutely. War. And so a lot of our documents from sort of pre-1940s mm. unfortunately went up in smoke. Destroyed. We do however have a record of all our classification decisions going back to day one which mm. is January 1913 so that's good mm. um, but in terms of the files and the sorts of files that you saw Keith, yeah we're talking about from the late 50s onwards um, You know, more often than not we, we have you know, very good coverage of those titles. As well as digging around in the BBFC archives you spoke to um, one of our experts. Uh, so that was our head of education, Lucy Brett, who took part in a video for the display, which was fantastic. What did you cover off in the discussions with Lucy? Well, we were delighted when Lucy agreed to be part of the exhibition. Mm. As I mentioned, we um, interviewed a number of people, uh, playwrights, theatre critics, social commentators. Mm. Um, but we was, felt it was important for someone from the BBFC to be part of the discussion. So when <coughs> Lucy came on board, it was a terrific opportunity to discover more about the history of the BBFC, how and why it was created, how it sort of ran parallel with the British film industry. Mm. And we looked at, again, some key moments and case studies, for example, in 1931, when the um, H for horrific certificate was, was introduced, mm. which Absolutely. was really largely a response to the um, Hollywood uh, Universal Studios creating a, a, a kind of a, creating a really a new genre of horror mm. film such as Dracula and and Frankenstein, mm. um, and then we looked also at um, the X coming in in 1951 and films such as The Wild One, Marlon Brando's The Wild One, um, and so there were key kind of moments that um, Lucy could really discuss with us, and we put that together with lots of film clips, and we also have Ian Christie and Christopher Frayling. So we just felt it was, it was important for the BBFC to really be part of that story of, of film classification. Having Lucy um, as part of the, the video element of the exhibition is a really nice addition to the fantastic posters that you have of particular films and um, the text that um, obviously, as you mentioned, just um, runs through bits of the core archive that we have at the BBFC. So obviously the V&A have a wide range of exhibitions, um, but how long do these genuinely take to plan? Because it was, it was something that we mm. were we were discussing yeah. before we um, started thinking about what to cover in the podcast and it's it's, it's something that I've, I've never really properly thought about and then we were like no of course that's, mm. it must take quite a long time to put together a, uh, an exhibition or a display because <laughs> this is a display rather than an exhibition isn't it so I may be using the wrong terminology sorry officially it's a display but really it's like a mini exhibition mm. when you think of how many objects there are, the kind of work that goes into it, creating all the AV, yeah. writing all the caption labels. Mm. Yeah, I do think, I've got, I do think to me, I mean, a display is, you know, when you first said display <laughs> to me, when, when we, you first got in touch with the BBFC, I was sort of imagining it to be a kind of like a, a wall, sort of, I mean, but in with all seriousness, well, sort of like, a, almost like a sort of a mural type thing, or mm. like a, a kind of a, where everything would be displayed in, on one wall, let's say, or in one place with, you know, a, a small thing, and, 
I mean, it's a few rooms, isn't mm, it? it? I is. mean, it really is. I mean, <laughs> yes. it's, I mean, obviously, I'm I, I'm learning as I go here because you know it's interesting to see what the V&A would call a display. Because for <laughs> me, for me, I would have just thought that's an exhibition. I mean, it's got loads of exhibits. And it's so it's dense, got a few rooms. It? <laughs> it's very dense. I mean, it's terrific. You know. Yes, um, I could say but, hey. it, it's termed as a display, <laughs> but actually, yeah. you know, for all intents and purposes, it does feel like an, an mm. exhibition. It's, it's, a, it's a few rooms yeah. with, with a lot of content. But <laughs> yeah. um, we, we were thinking about it for quite some time mm. because we knew the anniversary was coming up. Museums do like an anniversary <laughs> um, because it allows us to, to look at that particular moment. We can, we can look back, especially through telling stories through objects in our collections. And then almost to sort of take stock and kind of look look forward, and this is a kind of a great example of that. You know, post sixty eight, what's kind of happened? Mm. Um, but um, we were thinking about it for well over eighteen months to two years. But sometimes V&A exhibitions are, are really are sometimes four, if not five years in, mm. in the planning, mm. um, and the public program that we have is being um, looked at for. Sort of 2020, 2021, 22 mm. now, I and mean, then those projects are being worked on. They, they often it's like a jigsaw puzzle um, where you're you know borrowing material sometimes from all around the world mm. to make a particular definitive exhibition. And you want it to be as rich as possible, and all the yeah. negotiations do take a very long time. So yeah. Sometimes yeah, they are four or five years in the making. Yeah, and um, something else I want I might be wrong about this, but I'm imagining also. things need to be planned in advance very often because it needs to be known in advance what space in the V&A an exhibition is going to take and so someone might have a great idea for an exhibition and think let's do that in 2021 in a certain gallery or certain area and then somebody else says oh you can't do that because that's already earmarked for another (laughs) exhibition I mean there must be sort of a a sort of a a space element sort of a space availability element to to the planning as well there is there's, there's a whole there's a whole group um, I mean, I know how difficult it is in this place just booking a room for a meeting, <laughs> you know, <laughs> let alone organising an exhibition, you know. Yes, there's, there's, a, there's a, a group of people. I mean, the exhibitions department is, is very, very big. Mm. Um, and, you know, part mm. of that work is, is um, yeah, looking at the space, looking at dates, um, curators' work, workload, um, and really, again, like this sort of jigsaw puzzle of putting all the pieces into, into place because um, once you have the official announcement then it's kind of it becomes sort of set in stone slightly mm. and then of course um, the, the, the museum is thinking about you know touring and they like, they like V&A shows to kind of travel mm. yeah. inter- internationally sure. yeah. um, and so they're all thinking about those kind of options of where will it go beyond the V&A and setting up all those things so yeah. you're liaising with museums around the world internationally yeah. and getting your exhibition booked into their time slot so mm. there's a lot of juggling of plates that go mm. on yeah. I can imagine so as you mentioned museums love anniversaries was that the um, was the 50, uh, 50th anniversary the main driving force behind this exhibition or were the um, elements in it so specific examples of censorship were they the core focuses of, of when you started thinking about putting this exhibition together. That moment in 1968 with the Lord Chamberlain's office com- coming to an end mm. is such a significant era in, in British theatre. Mm. And I think that running up to 68 and the kind of the, the people, the personalities, the organisations, the Royal Court in particular, who were so involved with really trying to bring about the ending of stage censorship, I think it was such an important part. And because our uh, archives really reflect that, 
um, producers, directors, writers. We have the Royal Court Archive, for example. Mm. And so their battles <laughs> with the Lord Chamberlain, especially when they were performing plays such as Saved, mm. um, the Royal Court had to become a private members club. It was the only way to get around the stage censor. So that's such an important part of theatre history. We felt that you know, something to mark that moment um, was just very, very important. And so we had been thinking about exhibition display for really quite a long time. Um, it's always a wonderful opportunity for us to look at the archives and look at the kind of what kind of works that we have to best tell their stories. So it's not just paper documents, letters, telegrams, mm. or, you know, there are paintings, there are prints, and there are designs uh, from plays that kind of went under the blue pencil, so, <laughs> so to speak. Mm. Fantastic. So um, obviously this, uh, this specific exhibition will be wrapping mm. up in the new year, but... Um, could you give us a, a, a brief kind of summary about what you've got um, coming up in the new year at the V&A? Well, in the theatre and performance galleries, um, after the censorship exhibition closes, we have an exhibition on uh, looking at the theatre photography of um, Ivan Kinsel, mm-hmm. who was a theatre photographer uh, in the last sort of 50 years. And the major exhibitions, we have an exhibition called Video Games, Design, Play and Disrupt, which is on until 24th of February and offers a unique insight into the design process behind a selection of groundbreaking contemporary video games. And then the major spring summer exhibitions uh, opening the 2nd of February is Christian Dior, designer of dreams. (laughs) And hot on the heels of Dior is Mary Quant. Wow. uh, And that opens 6th of April. So (laughs) it's going to be sort of like fashion heaven. Yeah. uh, Yeah. uh, V&A from from, uh, spring, summer 2019. You'll phone down the gauntlet now, Keith. I'm feeling I'm going to have to go sort of seriously shopping for a new outfit or something before I can sort of visit either of these exhibitions. (laughs) But I'll I'll do my best not to look too out of place, you know. So it's either flared skirts or hot pants. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ed, for coming on the podcast. Let's not leave it another two years. No, my pleasure, Billy, and no, happy to happy to come back anytime. And a special thank you to you, Keith. If you weren't already aware, Censored Stage Screen Society at 50 is free and will be open to the public until Sunday, the 27th of January 2019. Go, it's fantastic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and again, if you would like to view our archives, you can do so by logging on to our website, going to the Education Resources section at the top of the page and clicking on Book In to visit the BBFC archives. Finally, don't forget, um, if you want to tell us what you'd like to hear discussed on the podcast you can email us at podcast at bbfc.co.uk or by tweeting us at bbfc thanks for listening and we'll be back soon with more insight into the bbfc classification from past and present it's goodbye from us goodbye goodbye